All right. Good morning, everybody. If you guys want to grab your coffee and find a seat, we're going to go ahead and get started. Before we do, I'm going to go ahead and pray for our time this morning. Uh, Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your son. Without him, we have no hope, but with him, we have all sorts of hope. Hope for today, hope for a better future, and for really a new one, a new creation. And I pray, God, that you would meet with us this morning, and that we would meet with you. I pray that around the room, God, that hearts would be open to what you want to say through your word this morning. God, I pray that you would be pleased to, to fill me and to empower me to preach your word. God, would you help anything that you want to stick to stick for, for those of us who are here and, and listening on the podcast, but anything that's not helpful, God, that's not of you, God, would it just kind of roll off? Father, I pray that Jesus would be lifted up, that he would be exalted this morning, that we'd be drawn to him, that we'd see him as he really is, beautiful, gracious, generous, kind, and worth pursuing with all that we have because he gave it all for us. God, we love you. We thank you. I pray that you would help me this morning and help us. We love you in your name. Amen. Amen. So, uh, again, if you're new, my name is Herrick. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are a church plant. Uh, we're actually in the first year of our church plant, and I think I've been thinking a lot about our community. I think there's something really special happening here. There's a special collection of people, and I think one of the unique things about this community specifically is that this is a uniquely gifted community. I think you know around the room. I just wrote down a few. There are leadership gifts in this room. There are obviously musical gifts. Thank you, musicians, uh, for the way you use those gifts every week. Yeah, you guys can clap. Uh, I think there's prophetic gifts in this room. There's healing gifts in this room. There's some of you who are like really gifted in prayer. Some of you are incredibly gifted in serving and in teaching and evangelism and sharing the gospel with other people, with both non-Christians, not yet Christians, and those who are Christians. There's mercy gifts in this room. There are all kinds of gifts in this room. And for me personally, I kind of feel like a coach with just like this amazing crew of players. It's actually really exciting. And, but we are young, so we're just kind of starting now to play together as a team, if you will. And I see the gifts emerging, and I can kind of see the impact that these gifts, your gifts, you can have as we work together as a team. I see just tons of potential for growth and for flourishing. And I think in the room right now, as I was thinking about our church, kind of praying about this community, I think there's a few different kinds of people in the room uh, today. Some of you are discovering your gifts right now, and it is exciting. And you're seeing ways in which God has wired you that you didn't even know, or maybe that you knew, but it's coming into sharper focus, and it's exciting, but it's also kind of scary. It's like, what do I do with that? How do I move forward in that way, this particular way that God has, has gifted me? Some of you already have like a pretty good idea of what your gifting is. Uh, maybe you've already started to use your gift, or maybe you're like getting, gearing up to do that. Maybe you're not quite using the gifts that you have in the same way that you used them in the past, and you kind of like are seeing an opportunity for more. And, and there's also people in this room that came into our church that just needed a break. You were just burned out on using your gifts. Uh, they were just overextended. You were overextended. You were burned out from overuse, or you maybe even felt burned because others used you for your gifting. And it's been a real pleasure and a joy to see some of you just like rest and recuperate and rehabilitate. And others of you, you're just new and you're just happy to be here and you just want to learn. And that's a great place to be. 
Whatever your individual journey looks like, I think it's clear that God is assembling a church here, a gifted church. And over time, as your pastors, Tom and I really want to help you guys slowly press into your gifts and use them effectively. And here's the big reason why. The gifts lift up Jesus. They make much of him. And they're beautiful for that reason. And they point us to Jesus in practical ways. And there's a lot that I could obviously talk about today, like, how, what are the gifts? How do you identify them and discover them? I'm actually not going to really talk about that today. Uh, today, I'm going to just talk about what it looks like to walk as gifted people together. Like the way in which we're going to use our gifts will be the focus of today. So if you have your Bible, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 7. And we'll have them on the screen. Babe, could you grab me some water? I totally forgot parched. Thank you. Thanks, babe. So, Corinth, okay? Corinth is a very gifted church. If you've never read this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Corinth, he says it right off the bat, you guys are gifted. You're not lacking in any gift. But they're a gifted team with room to improve, ways to grow in terms of how they use their gifts. There's much that they have to learn and press into, not unlike our church. And they had a legendary coach. His name is the Apostle Paul. And he kind of saw ways in which his gifted team could really like learn to play together, to grow as a unit instead of like a collection of individuals and like genuinely look out for each other and care for each other. So today we get to listen in on a pep talk for the ages to this really gifted crew of people from a legendary coach. So... 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 7. Quick context here. Uh, The Corinthians were very gifted, but they were overemphasizing certain gifts, like tongues, for example, and using them in ways that were not helpful to other people. And so Paul, in these words, he wants to recenter them. Like a good coach, he wants to recenter them on what matters most as they think about how to use their gifts. So verse 1 says this. If I speak human or angelic tongues... But do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith, so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give myself over, if I give my body over in order to boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. So we have a coach here basically saying, if we perform well and we win, If you guys don't love each other, if you don't care for each other, we lose. So we better find out what love is, because that's obviously, that's what it means to win. So this is, these are famous verses. Uh, You may have heard these verses in the context of a wedding, perhaps your wedding. These, These verses have implications for marriages, but I want you to keep the context in mind. He's talking about gifts right now and how to use the gifts. Verse four says this, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So what's Paul saying? It's like success in the Christian life as disciples, as we're you know, keeping the kind of team analogy going, success is about character. It's not about results. 
Success is primarily about character and only secondarily about results. It's not to say that results don't matter. They do, but they don't matter as much as character. So I want to kind of take a look at this, at these verses this morning through the lens of a team and players, okay, that make up that team. And when I say team, just think church. And when I say players, I just think the people that make up the church. Uh, if team sports is not your thing, it makes sense to me. If it's not your thing, just insert whatever group makes sense to you. Maybe it was like your theater group, or maybe it's a band, or maybe it's just think of it as a family. Like, think of it as like a, we're going to talk about two things, the self-focused player and the self-forgetful player. So you could just think of it, if it's easier for family purposes, like the self-forgetful brother, the self-focused sister. Does that make sense? Just use whatever analogy helps you. So if you're taking notes, the first thing we're going to look at, the self-focused player. So how many of you guys grew up on a team with a self-focused, self-absorbed player who was all about me, 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 me? See some hands going up in the room. How many of you guys were that player? Yeah. Constant trouble, eh? It's the worst. Uh, I was that player. I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a minute. But we see kind of this sort of team dynamic in Corinth. They're gifted, but they're self-focused. And I want to look at a few things that kind of... I love lists, just as a side note, if you don't know me. I think in lists. I just, that's, that's the way it, I, I, I operate. And so I made a kind of a list of the, kind of the main characteristics of a self-focused player. So we'll just kind of walk through the list one by one. And as I go through this list, I really want you to not just listen to this, but like apply this to your own life. Where do you see this in your own life? These tendencies are going to be universal and so it's not going to be weird if we see this. It'll honestly be weird if everything I say, you take nothing away from it. That would be strange. So because we're all broken, we're not what we're supposed to be, but we're being made whole. We're being made new. And so as I go through these, do any of these resonate with you? Why don't you be thinking about that? Especially here in the church. So here are a few tendencies of a self-focused player. Number one, they want to perform and be on display. Number one, if you're taking notes, they want to perform and be on display. So in verses one to three, Paul talks about doing good things. Let me just be really clear. When he talks about speaking in tongues, when he talks about prophesying, when he talks about kind of a sacrificial generosity towards other people, these are not bad things. He's not bashing them, but he's just saying you're pursuing them the wrong way. So his solution isn't stop doing these things. It's pursue them differently. Pursue them in a new way. So it's clear Paul is very pro the gift but he's against using the gifts to put on a show. He's against performance so that others can see us and validate us and recognize us. He's against us using our gifts to boast, to be admired, to kind of call attention to ourselves. It's kind of like that kid on your team that he wants more than anything else to win the kind of MVP award. And I realized that this kid is me from a young age. In... in uh, I think it was in the mid-90s we moved. My family moved to Aliso Viejo, if you guys know where that is. It's in Orange County. And that means when, when we moved, I had to play in a new baseball league. And I got kind of placed on a new team. And the reality was I was the new kid, and I really wanted to prove myself. I really wanted to show the other kids like, how good I was at baseball. I wanted to like, boast, I wanted to be admired, I wanted to be recognized. And so I fixated on the Rookie of the Year award, because I was new. Limited the pool a little bit, a little easier to win. And so 
I had my, the best year I've ever had in my life. That was the kind of pinnacle of baseball for me. I was 12. I was this size when I was 12. Uh, so I had kind of an unfair advantage. That, un- that, un- that unfair advantage really eroded over the years. But it was really unfair back then. I threw harder. I hit the ball farther. I hit the longest home run of the year. I mean, I just I could go on in terms of like what I had back then. And I boasted. I wanted to boast. But here's the reality. I was chewing on this, and I think... Something happened where I cared more about performing and being recognized than about the team itself. That year was the most fun I've ever had playing baseball. If you think about, if you've ever watched The Sandlot, that was it. That was my Sandlot. Those were the years that I look back on. I had an incredible coach and staff, this wonderful dentist named Jeff. He was our coach. Brilliant, thoughtful, poetic man. I made friends, and guess what? We won a title together as a team. District 55, we won. But you know what I remembered the most after that year? Was sitting during the award ceremony when they called Lincoln Zalazar as the Rookie of the Year and not me. And I still remember him. Well, hold on. I think, I think, the, I think boos are in order for me because there was this cloud that hung over this year for me. And, and, and the reality was, I think this cloud hung over me, and I couldn't see the incredible things that I had. And I just focused on what I didn't have. We won a championship. This was the most fun I've had as a kid, and I just focused on the award. And as I thought about it this week, I started to wonder, how often do we do that in the church? How often do we get clouded because things aren't going the way we want them to? right? Think about what's happening in this church. People are becoming Christians here. People are being saved. People are being transformed. They're experiencing new life in Jesus. People are walking into new levels of freedom and joy that they didn't think were possible. That's what God is doing. It's not us. It's God's doing this. He's doing this thing. And and the work of the the gospel is sometimes overshadowed because we just can't see past what we don't have. Does that make sense? kind of a big deal. And I think a good question to ask is, why am I doing this? Why am I pursuing this role? Why am I pursuing this gift? Is it to benefit me or is it to benefit the team? And just to be clear, I'm like everyone else. I'm prone to make the gifts about me. So I'm not better than anybody, but I'm saying as I've thought about this, is this true of you in this room? This might be a good reminder for you as it was a good reminder for me. The gifts aren't for us. It's not about us. And then if we make it about us, we miss out on the amazing things that are happening all around us. So that's the first thing, that self-focused players want to perform and be on display with tendency. Second thing, number two, self-focused players tend to be impatient towards others. Self-focused players tend to be impatient towards others. In verse four, Paul says, love is patient. So here I'm referring to the opposite of that, impatience. Self-focused players often don't have the time or patience to make space for someone else's development. Self-focused players often don't have time to make space to, to, for somebody else's development. So I'll give you an example of this. I preached my first sermon in, at Restored Uptown a few years ago. And Andy, who's the lead pastor there, did an amazing job of framing that moment for everybody. He basically said, hey, this is us as a family. We get to see one of our kids take their first steps as a preacher or ride the bike for the first time. If you think about that, that moment when our kids took their first step, it wasn't incredible. 
in terms of the form. And wow, what a, look at that balance. What's not? But what's, what's it like to be there for that? Exciting. Inspiring. Right? So Andy, I love Andy. He did such a great job of framing it for me. Because I wasn't going to preach an amazing sermon. And I, I didn't. And he framed it for me really well. It's not going to be the best thing you've ever seen or heard, but it's exciting. It's a family moment, right? Is this making sense? So there was a guy in our church who did not listen to this part, the prep for the message, the, uh, the intro. He was a very accomplished man. He was a PhD. He was a public speaker. He had positions of authority in his career. And this guy would sit during my messages like this. And honestly, I was so naive that I was like, oh, man, maybe God's doing like a real work <laughs> in his life. I found out later, years later, that he just had it in for my preaching. He hated it. He thought I preached long and poorly. Again, probably there's some truth to that, but he was angry and upset. And you know what he did? He never talked to me about it, but he complained to other people. And when I found out, how do you think I felt? Loved and helped? No. And the thing was, this guy wanted to be in a position of authority in our church. He wanted to be an elder, but he had no patience for the development of other people. And I thank God for the elders that we had at that time who saw through that and were like, "Mm, let's slow down here. And he left the church. He didn't get what he wanted. Are you patient with other people, with their development, with their shortcomings, with their flaws? Or do other people irritate you when they're not where you are? How about yourself? I find that I do this with me. I have very little grace for myself. Hashtag no grace. But there's a better way to patiently and kindly help someone when they're developing, and we're going to talk about it more later. Number three, self-focused players tend to want to be in control. Self-focused players tend to want to be in control. Is this all making sense, by the way? Are we on board? Okay. In verse 5 of this passage, Paul says, love is not self-seeking. The New Living Translation says, love does not demand its own way. Kind of the flip side of that is the need to be in control and get what you want. I want to use my gift and my role in a way that will serve, we wouldn't say this, serves me, as opposed to what's best for all. So let's go back to the team analogy I've been using this morning. This would be the kid on the team that's like, I want to play shortstop. I want to do this. And if it doesn't work out, or if it's just not the right timing to play short, or there's a pressing need in left field, the player might say, sorry, that's what I do, though. That's what I need to do. That's my role. That's my position. In some cases, when it gets really tough, it can even be like the the player will start to drum up support from other players, right? Right? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know about my gifts? I played in a program four times the size of this thing. And I was a starter. This is what I do. It's who I am. And in some cases, it's more about their identity than it is about the gift. If I don't do this, I don't know who I am. In other cases, someone may want to dictate what happens because of comfort or because of fear or some other self-focus, and it can get really bad. You ever had the kid on your team 
who didn't get what they wanted and started playing, talking to other players, started bringing parents in. Oh, the coach is out to get me. The coach doesn't like me. And what happens? It becomes a messy distraction. What do you think that does for team unity? Yeah, tanks it. And all the while, we forget we have an enemy that's doing backflips. It's like, yes, they're doing it for me. They're imploding. Internal squabbles, distractions, division. And there are also times when needing to be in control sometimes manifests in a kind of like, well, if I don't get what I want, I'm just going to take my ball and go home. If you are not a sports person today, I really apologize. Just the sporting analogies are just over the top. Is this making sense? Yeah. All right, number four, because I love lists. Self-focused players tend to be envious. Here we go. Self-focused players tend to be envious. Paul says in verse four that love does not envy. Self-focused players can be envious. I call this gift envy a lot of the times. And I know about gift envy because it's been a huge struggle in my life. And as I was thinking about it, I was like, you know when, when sometimes you look around and you see other people's cars, their houses, their vacations they're taking, and desire what they have? Instagram makes this so much harder if you struggle with envy. That, that can be envy when you want what other people have. It's not always that. But if your desire is ex- it's ex- excessive, or it's dehumanizing to other people, you're probably dealing with envy. And it's usually tied up with competition or comparison. There's a quote from Melissa Kruger that I like. I think it might be, might have it up on the screen, but I'll read it. Melissa Kruger wrote this. We usually covet in the areas where we compare ourselves to others the most. We compare colleges, boyfriends, weddings, children, parents, homes, jobs, trials, gifts, ministries, grandchildren, health, and numerous other items. Usually at the heart of this comparison trap is the mistaken belief that another person is getting it all. This is really important. Mistaken belief that the other person is getting it all while we're getting second best. Did you catch that? Sometimes we believe God forgot about us or is being stingy with us. I know that's been true of me far too often. Last year, I was reading Exodus 20. Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments, if you're not familiar with it. And I read these words. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Your neighbor's Lambo, whatever it is. It hit me. Do not covet your neighbor's gifts. I'm totally doing that. And here's the thing. I've been working very closely for years with very gifted people. I typically feel like, and I am, the least experienced person and least gifted person in the room. And even though that's true, the way I've responded is with envy. This year, just a few weeks ago, I feel like God kindly showed me that, reading Exodus 20, and just a few weeks ago, I feel like I became more aware that the reason I covet other people's gifts is that I think God's forgotten about me. It's like he's quasi-gifted me, but he's fully gifted everyone else. That, my friends, is what is called a lie. If I'm completely honest, if I've looked at the gifts of people all around me and been like, what about me? I can't preach like so-and-so. I don't lead well like so-and-so. I'm not as funny as that person. Seriously, I go there in my heart. 
I'm not proud of it, but that's honestly what happens. And then it's, it's been hitting me recently. That I'm, a, I'm forgetting something huge. You might already be a, kind of thinking about this. What have I forgotten? I don't deserve any gifts at all. It's all grace. By nature, I'm a rebel. I'm an enemy of God who's been brought into God's family as a sheer act of grace. Any gift I have is completely and utterly undeserved. The reality is God is not stingy. He's poured out his spirit generously on me and on this church and other people in this church. And again, it's like that cloud just hangs over. I just can't see it when I'm self-focused. And maybe that's true of you sometimes. Hopefully, this is a helpful reminder to you this morning that if you're in Christ, you're gifted because his spirit lives in you. And we can grow in contentment as we realize that, that reality and we actually get about the business of learning how to use our gifts, our opportunities to benefit other people and not make it about us. So how have you experienced self-focused tendencies in your own life, specifically in the church? Babe, can I get another water? So we're going to talk about the self-forgetful player. Thank you. Is that making sense? Those are the tendencies of self-forgetful players, self-focused players. Now we're going to go to point number two, the self-forgetful player. It's totally natural for us to be self-focused because we're broken and we're sinful, and sin does what? It turns us inward. Sin turns us inward. But it's unnatural for us to turn outward, to be self-forgetful. So I want you guys to listen to the words that the Apostle Paul wrote again, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 7. And I'm going to do something that might make some of you uncomfortable. I'm going to insert my name and your names into this. And I want, you to enc- I want to encourage you to do the same. Okay? Does that make sense? We're going to read it. And as we do this, just let it, just let it minister to you. This is what self-forgetfulness looks like. I'll start with me. Herrick is patient. Heather is kind. Brittany does not envy. Chad is not boastful. Dylan is not arrogant. Diligent. You like that one? Dylan is not arrogant. Tracy is not rude. Dorian is not self-seeking. Rosie is not irritable. Is this making sense? Kevin keeps no record of wrongs. Lisa finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Nancy bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's lovely, huh? It's also impossible. None of us have ever perfectly loved other people, huh? We lose our patience daily. We struggle with envy. We boast in ourselves. And we're prone to self-focus. But there was one who perfectly embodied these things. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate self-forgetful player. Everything he did was for the benefit of other people. Everything. His birth, his life, his death on the cross in our place, his resurrection to bring us into new life. It wasn't for his benefit. He didn't want to die. He did it for us. So let's, thinking about Jesus, let's go back through this description of love. In Paul's thinking in his mindset, love is patient and love is kind is a way to remind us of the way God loved us. I have a quote, Gordon Fee, New Testament scholar, brilliant man, 
It might be up on the screen, but I'm going to read it. Think about the way God loved us. On the one hand, God's loving forbearance, patience, it's demonstrated by his holding back his wrath toward human rebellion. I'm going to read that again. God's loving patience is demonstrated by his holding back his wrath toward human rebellion. On the other hand, his kindness is found in the thousandfold expressions of his mercy. Thus, Paul's description of love begins with his twofold description of God. Paul's description of love begins with his twofold description of God, who through Christ has shown himself forbearing, patient, and kind toward those who deserve divine judgment. And here's the key. Underline this in your thinking. The obvious implication, of course, is that this is how his people are to be towards others. So if you're taking notes, write this down. I think we'll have a slide for it. The way, here's the big idea for today. The way to use gifts lovingly is to model your use of them after the way God loved us. I'm going to read it again. There it is. The way to use gifts lovingly is to model your use of them after the way God loved us. Can you guys leave that up on the screen for a little bit? Is this making sense? The way he loved us and shapes how we use our gifts, informs how we use our gifts. So practically, how do we do that? What does that look like? I want to give you a list, I'll go try to go through it quickly, of a few ways that we can practically love through our gifts the way he loved us. Number one, we don't quit or give up. We endure. Because Jesus endured for us. So before Jesus was betrayed and arrested, while praying to his father, Jesus said in Matthew 26, 39, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus did not want to die, but he laid down his life in obedience to God. Why? To save us, to benefit us. The cross wasn't for himself. He didn't sin. We did. And Jesus bore through that. Bared? Bore? You guys know what I mean. He endured through the cross. And then Paul says, love bears all things. Love endures all things. So when we're using our gifts, we endure. We persevere. When things aren't going the way we want them to, we don't quit or give up. We press in because that's the way of Jesus. You guys seeing this? The way Jesus informs everything we do? I remember three years ago, I hit the lowest point in my time in ministry. I was really inexperienced and not sure what I was doing. And one week it showed publicly when I was holding down the fort during a time when the other staff members were gone. I was embarrassed, really embarrassed, and I wondered if I'd ever recover. I had a really bad day at the office. When I have a bad day at the office, it's with 100 people. So my desire was to take my ball and go home. I didn't want to look bad or fail again. In hindsight, I wanted to protect myself because I felt fragile and I felt like I could break easily. But God showed me how patient and how kind he is. How did he do it? He sent people to remind me of Jesus. He sent more mature people to help me in that time. They were honest with me. They didn't sugarcoat that I had some work to do. But they helped me to identify some practical steps to take. They embodied God's patience and kindness with me. If the church was a business, I might have gotten fired. But the church is a family, so they patiently bore with me. A family that's informed by Jesus and what he did for us. They didn't give up on me. 
So I didn't give up either. Things turned around through their help and God's kindness that was manifest to me through them. Contrast that now for a second to the way the other guy didn't show patience to me. There really is a better way to patiently and kindly help someone as they're developing. We can do this for one another as a community. Do you want that? There's an amazing example. Write this down if you're taking notes. I'm not going to read it, but Acts 18, 24 to 28, we see one of the most beautiful examples of this in the Bible that I'm aware of. There's this man, his name is Apollos. He's a very gifted person, and he's going out preaching the gospel. Here's the thing. Apollos did not have it figured out. There were gaps in his understanding. There were things in his teaching that were missing. There were ways in which he needed to grow. But if you read that text, the way that, that Luke, who wrote this, he talks about Apollos, and the way Priscilla and Aquila talked about Apollos, he was honored. They honored the call of God on his life. And guess what? Priscilla and Aquila pulled him aside and showed him more accurately how to preach. They didn't criticize him, and they didn't leave him to figure it out on his own. I'm going to say that again. They didn't criticize him, and they didn't leave him to figure it out on his own. They patiently and privately and kindly pulled him aside and helped him see things a little bit more clearly. They loved him. What was the result of that? If you read to the end, Apollos went on to be a great help. He preached passionately, and he defended the gospel. Man, what if we became the kind of community where we regularly did that for one another? That's already happening. What if we can, we, can we commit to this together as a community? Does you want to approach people's shortcomings like that, like Priscilla and Aquila? If you want to, you can change. Jesus can help. This is what he's doing in us. This is what he wants to do through us. So we don't give up, number one. Number two, we don't give in to fear. Number two, we don't give in to fear. We don't let fear control us, dominate us. There's an element here where, in Paul's words where he's kind of saying, like, love has faith. Love has faith, believes all things, bears all things. And for me personally, this has taken on a whole new meaning just in the last few weeks. I feel afraid a lot, if you don't know me. Fear is sort of my default mode. It's the thing I have to fight the most in this life. Doubt. And a lot of times what I'm doubting is God's power and his desire to work through me to minister to other people. So recently I've felt gently challenged by God to stop giving in to fear and take a risk to love people with my gifts. So you may know this, you may not. Tom, Jay, and I went to South Africa a few weeks ago. And we ministered there at a church called West Point Church in Kloof, which is a suburb of Durban. It's Temecula in South Africa, essentially. As I, and I really felt like God is prompting me to pray, to begin to pray for, for West Point Church, to love that church through prayer. And I started praying one day, and I got a little picture in my mind's eye as I was praying. I kind of saw like a little vision that I thought could be for West Point Church, but I didn't know. So I had a choice. I could share or not share. I could share or not share. Here's the thing. By nature, I like to minimize risk. I should have been like working with mortgages before the, the, they blew up 10 years ago. I minimize risk. So not sharing was really tempting to me. It was safe. 
But again, God's been kind of challenging me on this. So I decided to pray, and I felt prompted to share. And you would think it'd be easy for me to pick up my phone and just send a message with a description of what I sensed, but it wasn't. I felt really afraid. If I was wrong, it could undermine my credibility in the eyes of the leaders of West Point Church. I could look back potentially and say, oh, I just put, I put them in a weird space where they had to say, hey, thanks, but that doesn't resonate. That's not quite right. I came up with all these different things and all these different ways that sharing could backfire on me. But even as I thought about it, why it didn't make much sense to share, I felt prompted to share. I couldn't deny it. I couldn't shake it. I was reminded that love is self-forgetful, but fear is self-protective. So I finally I shared the picture and, and what I thought it meant. And I sat there a few times. I'm like, Do I, am I going to send this? Okay, I'm just going to hold the bu- down the button, record it, and let it go. I had to force myself to do it. That's how afraid I was. A few days later, I heard from Brian, okay, who's, who's my friend, who's the lead pastor there at West Point. He said, he texted me, I want to give you feedback on Sunday, the, word, the thing I shared with him. Your word was spot on. As it turned out, the picture I shared with him encouraged him because it was the same, I had some imagery in the picture that I shared with him. It was the same imagery that, that Brian felt God had given him before many times in different ways. So it resonated with what he felt God was telling him and the ways that God was speaking to him. Also, I shared some things that, that for him proved spot on once he ministered uh, later that day to a new Christian who was battling with some major depression. He ended up sharing the picture that I shared with him with various other people as he kind of told the story of the way God worked through the global church to empower him to preach and empower him to minister and also to bring joy and freedom to a man who was majorly depressed. And Jesus used that picture which I wasn't even sure if it was accurate, to encourage, to strengthen my brother, to help another man find greater freedom in Jesus, just from sharing a picture and praying. And now that story is circling around their church, and it's encouraging people. Now, God's given me a gift. He's given you a gift. I'm not saying this as someone who's like way more gifted than you guys are. I'm not. I can list off all the different ways I don't feel gifted. But he's given you a gift, do you want to use your gifts for the benefit of other people? Do you want to press into the fear, press through it, potentially look bad, to love others and trust Jesus with it? Is this making sense? I don't regret it. I felt the fear and I pressed in and I did anyway. I don't regret it at all. So here's the last thing I want to talk about. Last thing. We believe God's calling on our life. I want to call the band back up. I'm just going to share a quick story. Who's seen The Incredibles 2? It's on Netflix. If you haven't seen it, I encourage you to check it out. It's a winner. Um, So in The Incredibles 2, something fascinating happens. There's a family. It's a mom and a dad and then a bunch of kids. And they're superheroes. And basically in Incredibles 2, I'm going to try not to give too much away of the plot. The mom goes, kind of, she goes and does superhero work while the dad stays home. And the roles are reversed, huh? From what's usually the case. And the dad gets a report back of the mom doing something amazing, saving the day. And he's like, I'm so proud of you, honey, while he's changing diapers and he's trying to put kids down. He's trying to keep kids from killing each other. And I was watching that movie on Friday and I thought, oh man, I need to share this. Here's the reality. 
There are people in this room, I believe, who feel like the dad in The Incredibles 2. You hear stories of your spouse or other people going to South Africa, doing these things, and you're just there grinding every day with your kids in in your cubicle at school or whatever. And here's the amazing thing about that movie. So the dad is grinding. He's gritting his teeth. He's like, I'm so proud of you, honey, but he wishes he was out there. The most amazing thing happens in this movie. The kids that he's with actually end up becoming the heroes who save the day. And it got me thinking about us. I'm like, moms, dads, employees, like you may feel like the work that you're doing is not kingdom work or it's lesser than. It's not. Your children, whether that's physical, biological children or your spiritual children that you're discipling, they might be the next wave of disciples that God uses to change the world, to preach the gospel. Your time is not wasted. Does that make sense? So I really want to encourage you guys with that. Your time at the cubicle is not wasted. If, you're, if you are engaging with God in your, on your job, you are seeking to minister to others, you're seeking to minister to your children, you're seeking to use whatever opportunities you have to benefit other people, it's worth it. It's not wasted. And you never know how God's going to use that. Your children might well be the next church planters. They might be the next evangelists, the next leaders in the church. In fact, I have a feeling that they will be. And that's a great gift. And so your time with them is not wasted. So I'm going to encourage you, if you can, please stand. I'm going to do something that I've never done before. I'm going to take a risk. If, you, uh, if you're here with us, typically Tom will end his message and kind of pray. And you'll see what God is saying and he'll share. I'm going to do the same thing right now. Hi, Tom. So if you guys want to just chill for a minute, close your eyes if you want to, listen to the music, I'm going to pray. And I'm going to see if God has anything specific he wants to share with people in this room before we worship. Ghostbusters 2. Anybody seen that? It's incredible. Cinematic uh, genius. And at the end of the movie, there's like this slime ball that covers a building. And they're like, the Ghostbusters are there trying to break it open. And it does break open. And I feel like, I feel like God's saying that there's people in this room, you feel like you've been like a bubble of fear. Potentially, you haven't been able to really step into your calling, your gifting. I feel like God's saying like it's breaking. Like that bubble is breaking. And at the end of the movie, if you've ever seen it, there's a picture of the Ghostbusters. It's beautiful. It's like a, you know, it looks like a work of Michelangelo or something. And I feel like I got that picture. And it's like whatever's, come, whatever's been there in the past, the future, it's going to look beautiful. It's going to be amazing. It's going to look different. And in God's eyes, like we're his masterpieces, we're his works of art. I think he's going to unlock something for you. So if you want that, ask him. Receive it this morning. Now let's pray. Let's, I'm going to pray real quick and then we'll sing. By the way, we'll have communion in the back. 
If you want to take communion, there's a couple different ways you can respond. You can take communion, you can sing. We have two very quick house rules with communion. You never take it alone, and you do it with a joyful heart because it's God giving his son for us. We're responding joyfully and gratefully to what he's done. So you can take communion if you'd like, grab someone, or you can just sing and worship. And we'll be back up to close in a couple of minutes. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your goodness and mercy to us. For that you would help us to receive what you have, to walk in greater freedom, greater joy, to use our gifts really to benefit other people and really follow the way of Jesus as we're using our gifts in the church. God, we love you. We thank you. And it's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. Amen.